Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 34, Restless. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Early in my career as a medical student, I was convinced that some diseases were just being made up by drug companies to move products, that there was no way this could possibly be real. Boy, was I wrong. In this week's episode, I'll be reviewing one of the most common disturbances that can interfere with your ability to fall asleep, Willis-Eckbaum disease, also known as restless leg syndrome. The term restless legs is a bit misleading, since the condition doesn't affect just the legs, and some people experience no issues in the legs, but exclusively other parts of their body. But the name itself also just sounds made up restless legs. Not to mention, most of us probably heard about it at the turn of the millennium thanks to an ad campaign to sell a drug called Repinerol under the brand name Requip. But it turns out this disorder was described long before GlaxoSmithKline was trying to make a buck. Sir Thomas Willis first published the description of the disorder in 1672. It was, however, in Latin, later translated into English. He describes the afflicted experience, quote, presently in the arms and legs, leapings and contractions on the tendons, and so great a restlessness and tossings of other members ensue that the diseased are no more able to sleep than if they were in a place of the greatest torture, end quote. It wasn't until 1945 that Carl Axel Ekbaum, in revisiting the early descriptions, coined the term restless legs, and then decades later when this literature was again uncovered and the condition entered the lexicon of modern medicine. It is one of the few conditions in modern medicine where we are trying to get back to an eponym, to replace the name restless leg syndrome with Willis-Eckbaum disease, in reference to the above who initially described the condition. We now see that in some populations, especially Caucasians, it may affect about 1 out of 7 people, with a worldwide prevalence approximately 1 out of 20 people. That's no small number, with about the same number of restless leg sufferers as there are U.S. citizens. So what exactly is restless legs or Willis-Eckbaum disease? The easiest way to describe the disorder is by its symptoms, and then we'll talk a little bit about why these symptoms come about. RLS is characterized by a discomfort, typically in the legs, causing an agitation or urge to move the affected part of the body. Some describe this sensation as a tickle or bugs crawling. Some feel it deep in the tissue, some just on the surface of the skin. Some may not experience an explicit sensation, but rather just the urge, the undeniable need to move. In short, they are restless. This sensation and the need to move happen especially at, and almost exclusively, during periods of physical rest. No one describes RLS symptoms while jogging or climbing up the stairs. 
It is the act of becoming still, the absence of movement. It is rest that triggers the restlessness. And not just rest at any time. There is a clear circadian component. Namely, it is rest in the evening or just at night when getting ready to sleep that seems to be the problem. Whereas experiencing RLS during periods of rest earlier in the day is a marker of more severe disease. Because typically as RLS progresses, there is a time creep of the restlessness occurring earlier and earlier in the evening, to the afternoon, to midday, to basically all day. Now when someone is in the midst of a bout of bothersome restlessness, it is not a continuous experience of suffering. Indeed, the very thing that they are compelled to do, to move, helps to alleviate this odd urge. You get this unusual sensation, a spirit moving you to move, whether by a tickle, a discomfort, or no identifiable reason, just feeling pressure to move. And when you rub or stretch or massage the legs, or even better, get up and walk around a bit, that urge goes away. The itch is scratched. You feel compelled to move, and when you move, the compulsion disappears. Congratulations. The problem is, there's only a temporary alleviation of that compulsion. Because shortly after the movement stops, you sit or lay back down, come back to a rest, and then the urge to move rears its ugly head once again. As soon as you stop moving, the sensations come right back, the compulsion comes right back, and the need to move comes right back. So then you feel like you gotta get back up, move again to relieve the restlessness, feel better, feel relieved, feel like now you're ready to fall asleep, but as soon as you lay back down again, the cycle repeats. Doesn't that sound lovely? So many people that experience RLS have come to know all too intimately what Willis described nearly 400 years ago, quote, a place of the greatest torture. So where does this come from? Why do some people experience RLS, or Willis-Eckbaum disease? In the long view, we see the triumph of the science of medicine play out in regards to RLS, testing out ideas, tossing out the bad ones, and getting closer and closer to a refined truth. But the actual experience has been one of misleading hypotheses, poorly communicated ideas, in the selling of the waters by marketing of profitable drugs. As in the case with many conditions, sometimes the clues to the cause come from interventions that provide some relief. For example, we don't know with the slightest bit of neurobiochemical precision the mechanism of how some people get depression, but we do see a therapeutic response from selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. So the assumption is depression is somehow related to dysfunction of serotonin. That's a reasonable assumption but it doesn't really answer the question of what causes depression or why the percentage of SSRI users who benefit is so low. If depression was all about serotonin, why do the majority of SSRI users fail to benefit? With RLS, particularly among those with Parkinson's disease, there was a notable response to treatment with dopamine. So then dopamine was used to treat those without Parkinson's disease. And again, there was a clear therapeutic response. So the assumption was that RLS was due to a deficiency in the brain's use of dopamine, analogous to the brain's relative deficiency of effective serotonin use causing depression. But over the last 25 years, we've learned quite a bit more about this condition, from the ultimate disappointment of dopamine treatments to imaging studies, autopsies, and yes, animal studies with rodents. The way that it is now best understood, there's actually not a dopamine deficiency in RLS but truly in excess of dopamine in the extracellular space around the brain cells in some key regions. But you should be rightfully asking, why would giving dopamine to someone with too much dopamine provide some benefit? It turns out there ends up being a shift of dopamine's locations with RLS, with lower concentrations inside brain cells, but higher concentrations of dopamine outside the cells compared to normal. While it doesn't always work out this way, biology likes to keep balance a concept known as homeostasis. 
And when it comes to being overwhelmed with higher amounts of certain signalers, such as when there's too much surrounding dopamine, homeostasis means that we start down-regulating, decreasing the number of available receptors for this excess signal molecule. Think of this like hearing. When you're at a concert and the volume is overwhelming, you may want to put in some earplugs. You want to decrease the sensitivity of your hearing, make your ears less available to those ambient sounds. You can still hear, but it is not as overwhelming. Or if you're trying to have a conversation with a chronic whisperer, you might need to pull in a little bit closer to hear. Or in a cartoon land, pull out an old-timey horn to boost your hearing so you can understand. So too in cellular biology. If the hormonal signal is too quiet, the receiving cell will upregulate or increase the number of available ears or hormone receptors. On the other hand, if the hormonal signal is too loud, too much of that signal, the receiving cell will decrease the number of receptors made available to listen. So in RLS, dopamine signals are elevated, leading to a decreased number of available receptors. This works out great all day long without a hitch, but dopamine concentrations follow a circadian pattern. Higher release during wakefulness and going silent with very little dopamine signaling during sleep. And the release of dopamine is a much faster adjustment the body can make than increasing or decreasing the number of receptors. So as the evening approaches, as the body gets closer to sleep, dopamine levels are waning. And with fewer dopamine receptors to begin with, their brain experiences a sudden withdrawal, a sudden deficit of dopamine due to too few receptors in the context of normal decrease in the amount of dopamine available. It's like being in the balcony section at a Metallica concert all day long with earplugs in, and then suddenly all the mics and speakers turn off and someone is whispering on stage. Suddenly, you feel relatively deaf. And adding a bit of bonus dopamine boost in the form of these dopamine drugs like Rapinarol, under that brand name of Requip, it appeared to alleviate that sense that suddenly there was a dopamine deficit. As we've learned more about RLS over the last couple decades, we see some of the root causes of these changes in brain chemistry and signaling. It turns out, as best as we can understand it right now, that the ultimate root cause of all of that is due to brain iron deficiency. Now, the whole body uses iron, but disproportionately. Your bone marrow uses iron and hemoglobin to carry oxygen around in the blood to supply the body. No blood iron, no carry oxygen, no live. So the blood gets the priority, for very good reason. Anemia is a condition of the blood being unable to carry enough oxygen, with iron deficiency anemia being one of the most common flavors of anemia. But you can satisfy the blood's need for iron and yet still be iron deficient in other areas of the body, like the brain. And that's what happens with RLS or Willis-Eckbaum disease. In fact, those with anemia are far more likely, in some studies 16 times more likely, to suffer RLS than those without anemia. Because if there's not enough iron for the blood, there's certainly not enough left over for the brain. And we see women of childbearing age experiencing RLS at about twice the rate as men and older women, likely due to the blood loss and loss of the ability to recycle that blood iron from menstruation. And it's hard to measure brain iron. You can measure it at an autopsy. You can measure it in animal models, basically an autopsy of the rat. We can also now measure it with several techniques using MRI. But cutoffs and norms haven't been established, or the best technique hasn't been figured out, and MRIs are relatively expensive. Blood tests, however, are much cheaper. And that ends up being what the primary objective assessment is in the evaluation of RLS, but not a very accurate one. You see, checking iron levels in the blood only tells you iron levels in the blood. So if someone is anemic, you can confirm that with measuring blood iron levels. But if somebody is not anemic, but has brain iron deficiency, a blood test is unable to confirm that. 
there are clues in the peripheral blood by looking at some of the proteins that help shuttle and bind to iron, but that's still imprecise. The good news, despite this imprecision, is that essentially as long as someone is not iron overloaded, as long as that blood test does not demonstrate that they already have too much iron in the blood, we see that iron therapy does improve restless legs. Because when the brain is deficient in iron, it affects multiple pathways. As mentioned, it disturbs the normal distribution of dopamine, with more dopamine shifted outside of the cells from inside, which then changes the concentration of available dopamine receptors, and so on. But low brain iron also increases signaling in adenosine. Yes, that adenosine. The same adenosine that is blocked by caffeine. The same adenosine that is the biomarker for sleep drive. The same adenosine that is increased after exercise. Low brain iron also increases activity in glutamate, yet another important brain chemical, the most prominent excitatory neurotransmitter. Put all these changes together, all rooted in the brain's deficiency in iron, and we get overexcitability. So we are jumpy, agitated, overaroused, all making it harder to fall asleep. And this also primes the pump for physical movement, so we kick and twitch the legs. We get up and move and walk and stretch and rub, also not conducive to falling asleep. All due to the brain not having enough iron. There are several medications that can provide relief from RLS by impacting these neurochemical pathways, but they are all not perfect. There are many more medications that can negatively impact RLS by influencing these pathways, though not always and every time. It's complicated. But we are better understanding this condition more and more each year. So to summarize, a very common cause of having trouble getting to sleep is a condition called restless leg syndrome, also known as Willis-Eckbaum disease. It seems to make an appearance only just as you are trying to get some rest or fall asleep at night. And boy, is it agitating. The greatest torture, as Willis described it in the 17th century. And while there are several contributors, the main mechanism appears to be a relative brain iron deficiency. When the brain doesn't have enough iron, several neurochemical pathways are affected negatively, resulting in this affliction. So if you are having difficulty getting settled at night because of restlessness, because of an odd or irritating sensation, typically but not always in the legs, and getting up and moving around provides at least some temporary relief, you may have restless legs. There are several treatment options, from massage to warm baths to exercise to a couple FDA-cleared vibrating devices to medications. But if you think you may have RLS, check with your trusted healthcare provider or find the closest accredited sleep center and ask about iron. With a simple blood test, they should be able to tell you if you may be a candidate for iron therapy, either an oral tablet or intravenously, because addressing the root cause of brain iron deficiency has been shown to help with this condition. But iron, like any other medication, is not benign and should only be used under the direction and supervision of your medical providers. However, it may help provide that relief, that rest from restlessness you've been looking for. So be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave us a review and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information. Thanks for listening.